Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Deblina Charcoborty. And as you know, we've been talking about shipwrecks quite a bit recently. And most recently, we talked about military shipwrecks, the Vasa, the Monitor, the Hunley, and the Yamato. And between the four, I was thinking about this, trying to go over that list in my head. We had design flaws, we had rushed schedules, we had air attacks, and we had torpedoes. But this episode is going to combine all of that. We have all four of those things in one ship, plus a really heavy dose of revenge, which always makes a good podcast. Yes. Before we get to that, though, we're going to set the scene for you a little bit. In early 1941, the United States was still nearly a year away from entering World War II. But the country provided vital wartime supplies to the Allied nations, and to do so, American merchant ships had to cross the Atlantic to get to Europe. And this unbroken chain of supplies was really vital for the United Kingdom, since they're an island nation. Yeah, so we all know pretty much how effective the German U-boats were at disrupting this chain, sinking the merchant ships. But the German Navy also knew that having a few massive battleships out there would make the blockade a whole lot easier around England. So that's why in May 1941, they sent the battleship Bismarck and the cruiser Prince Eugene to blockade Britain. That's pretty scary because at this time, the Bismarck was the most feared warship in the world. Yeah, it launched pretty recently before that in 1939, and it was tough, very thick armor, very fast, and armed with very, very big guns. It had an efficient crew, top equipment. It was like the ultimate ship. Yeah, and everybody knew it, too. In the first volumes of his memoirs, Winston Churchill wrote that finishing work on two new British battleships, the King George V and the Prince of Wales, was vital because, quote, the arrival of the Bismarck on the oceans before these two ships were completed would be disastrous in the highest degree, as it can neither be caught nor killed and would therefore range freely throughout the oceans, rupturing all communications. And just in case Churchill's quote isn't enough for you, there's a National Geographic piece titled, Nazi super ship describing the Bismarck. So I think that gives you a pretty good idea of what kind of vessel this was. Yeah, pretty intimidating. So May 19th, 1941, the Bismarck and the Prince Eugen are deployed from Gotenhofen on the Baltic coast, and they're planning to wind their way around to the Atlantic. They're then spotted off the coast of Norway by Royal Air Force reconnaissance, but they slip away before anything can be done. Yeah. So the British home fleet converges onto the Atlantic to try to stop the ship, and they're covering all the routes that they can. They cannot let the Bismarck get out into the open. So there's no sign of the ship for days, and then finally on May 23rd, the cruiser Norfolk sights the Bismarck in the Denmark Strait. And this is perfect because the Prince of Wales, which is the new British battleship that England was rushing to complete, is there, along with six destroyers and the battlecruiser Hood. Yeah, and the Hood was a type of battlecruiser that had been developed before World War One, And this type of ship was really fast, designed to outrun ships, but consequently not quite as well armored as other as some other ships were. Nevertheless, the British really liked 
the battle cruisers and had built quite a few of them during the war, during World War One. And the Hood was built in 1918, the 13th and final British battle cruiser. But even though she needed a refit by this point, she was still kind of a point of pride for the British. And she had been sent out with the powerful but still untested Prince of Wales's kind of protection guidance. You know, they, they would tag team, I guess. Yeah, so the day after the cruiser Norfolk learns that the Bismarck is in the area, the Prince of Wales spots the German battleship. The hood fires first, but she's going too fast to be really accurate. The Bismarck, on the other hand, has stereoscopic rangefinders, so a hit to the hood causes an explosion and a huge fire. The ship then breaks into two and sinks all of a sudden, and all but three of the 1,419 men who are on the hood die. Yeah, and so the hood sinking means that it's payback time now for the British, and even FDR was worried that with the Bismarck on the loose, all sorts of damage might ensue. He was actually afraid that the Bismarck might come bombard Halifax or New York City, or maybe it would go around the world and go to Japan, or maybe it would even take Martinique. So there were all sorts of gloomy scenarios about what the Bismarck on the loose might do. Churchill's response, though, is pretty definitive. Think the Bismarck. So this is revenge. Yeah, it's literally revenge, right? Because one of the ships that the British deploy is actually called Revenge. It's the battleship Revenge from Halifax, and it's sent to the situation. But the British actually deploy most of their available warships at this point. They take them off of their original missions. So joining the Revenge are the battleships Rodney and the Ramillies, for example, which leave behind their convoys and head straight to the situation. Yeah, which I have to imagine it would be pretty scary to be out in U-boat-filled waters if you were (laughs) one of these convoys and you see your battleship and most of the destroyers sail on off all of a sudden. Yeah, not comforting. They can't spare any of them. So meanwhile, the Bismarck has a few different options about what she can do. Admiral Gunther Lutjens can take out the injured Prince of Wales, which, uh, you know, sustained a little bit of damage during the same battle that sunk the hood. Um, So They could finish off the Prince of Wales and then go back to Norway for repairs and refueling. Or the Bismarck could head out into the Atlantic. And the plan could be to head to France for repairs and possibly resume the blockade operation from there because landing in France, he'd have a straighter shot then for the Atlantic. And the Admiral chooses this second option, going out into the Atlantic and eventually trying to get over to France. But the Germans are also converging a lot of their fleet in the area, too. So they know that the British want to sink the Bismarck, and they're bringing every available warship they can into the area. So the Germans are thinking if they put all of their available U-boats in the area, the Bismarck might be able to trail all these British ships into a trap of sorts. If the U-boats stretch across the ocean and create a net of sorts, it could be really, really disastrous for the British. There's a big problem, though, with the plan. Yeah, the Bismarck is running low on fuel, and it becomes clear that there will be just enough for them to get to France none for the traps or, more importantly, for any diversions. And to make the situation more complicated, on May 24th, tiny swordfish planes are launched from the aircraft carrier Victorious. A torpedo hit causes minimal damage, but it's the Bismarck's first casualty. Yeah, there's actually the first sailor is is killed aboard the Bismarck. So literally, it's first casualty. But the next day, the Bismarck reduces its speed and starts performing some repairs because it's accumulated a few 
problems by this point and also engages a little bit with the Prince of Wales, even though neither ship is ultimately hit. That night, though, the Bismarck finally manages to shake off the British ships that have been nearby and breaks free, and the British ships lose contact. Unfortunately, though, for the Bismarck, they don't realize that the British have lost that radio contact. Yeah, and they've so they, lost their signal. They don't know where they are, but the Bismarck doesn't know that. Yeah, so they keep sending messages out that get all bunched together and end up coming out in one very, very long signal. And by the time they're warned that the Brits actually did lose contact, and, and by the time they start maintaining that strict radio silence, it's too late. The British have already picked up on the signal again. Yeah, still, though, the mood is actually merry on board the Bismarck that night. Hitler even sends a birthday message to Admiral Lutjens. But by the next morning, patrol aircraft find the ship. The Bismarck still has a chance, though, to make a break for France at this point. There's no way that the British ships that are nearby can catch up with them unless the Bismarck slows down considerably. Or is slowed down. Right. But the best option the British have is to use their aircraft carrier, the Ark Royal, to deploy more tiny swordfish planes with torpedoes. Yeah, and this time those swordfish planes get two hits, and one of them jams the Bismarck's twin rudders and makes it so she can't maneuver anymore, and it'll be impossible for her to get away. And just by the way, you might want to look up the swordfish planes. They really look kind of like balsa wood biplanes, super tiny, especially when you see them compared to something the size of the Bismarck. It's pretty striking. So the ship, the Bismarck, is bombarded through the night by nearby British and Polish destroyers, but there are no hits. By the next morning, the Rodney and the King George V arrive and open fire. The Norfolk arrives pretty soon and joins in. Then the cruiser, the Dorsetshire. And ultimately, it's a two-hour-long attack, with the Rodney even getting into point-blank range by the Bismarck. Ultimately, 2,867 shells are fired on this ship, but it just won't go down. Finally, though, the Bismarck does go down, and it's three torpedoes from the Dorsetshire that sink her the morning of May 27th, with the captain saluting on deck and the flag flying. So just to give you an image of what that would have looked like. Some people, though, have suggested that the Bismarck was scuttled by her own crew. Yeah, instead of being sunk by the the allied ships. But regardless, the captain had already given the order to abandon ship, and around 800 people on board managed to escape. Some of the survivors, you you can actually see interviews, taped interviews with some of the survivors, and they recount working really deep inside the ship at their stations and eventually realizing that the British were shooting more and more, and they were shooting less and less. And when the ship went silent, it was time to go. And they picked their way out of the labyrinth. I mean, this huge ship, you can imagine what it might be like underneath it all. And for those who made it onto the deck, of course, there's still the bombardment going on. So there's metal everywhere, and there's bodies, and they try to protect themselves behind the gun turrets. And Finally, of those 800 who survive, not really that many managed to ultimately escape and be rescued. The British ships picked up a little more than 100 men, but then they left the area after a U-boat scare. Some accounts even say that men were in the process of being hauled up when the British ships had to leave. A little bit later, U-boats and a Spanish heavy cruiser come around and find a few more guys. But basically, if you weren't on that, those first American ships in the area, that was it. Yeah, there were only 115 men of the 800 that escaped, which were rescued. 2,200 officers and men were killed. 
total. And the survivors, of course, then are prisoners of war. They were interrogated and kept as prisoners for for the rest of the war. I don't think that uh, there was too much information that was obtained from them, though. They seemed to be... Like they were knowledgeable about their own immediate job, but not how the whole ship operated. But the Royal Navy nevertheless considered sinking the Bismarck to be one of its biggest accomplishments. It's still pretty highly regarded. And that's partly because the battleship seemed invincible. But clearly something went wrong for this huge monster ship to ultimately be taken down like this. Yeah, so what was it? Well, some people think that the Bismarck just might not have been ready. She had lost training time at sea due to the severe winter of 1941, and there was no making up for lost time, basically. Her schedule was absolutely inflexible. There wasn't even enough time to put her through the complete battery of naval ordnance tests. Some of her artillery, fire control, and radar equipment was actually installed too late to test even, so there was no way to know. Yeah, and even the stuff that was tested didn't seem entirely up to snuff. The report, which was filed, ironically, four days after the ship had already sunk, made 117 observations and recommendations regarding improvements to weapon systems. And a lot of these were minor, but there were a few pretty serious ones. And some regarded the ammunition. Um, that was pretty telling because the Prince of Wales had actually been struck by several German duds. That suggests a problem. And the onboard anti-aircraft artillery made up one third of the suggestions. And if we think about those swordfish, not a single swordfish was was shot down. So clearly, even though the Germans were firing pretty heavily on them, there was a problem there. And I think the report even noted that there weren't the correct anti-aircraft technical manuals and diagrams on board. So not even the literature they needed. Yeah, but of course, all these recommendations came way too late. Um, but the takeaways here were that Even though it went down eventually, the Bismarck was remarkably tough. It withstood a constant barrage for hours while the hood had gone down in just a matter of minutes. Yeah, it just wasn't equipped to fight aircraft. I mean, that seemed like the thing that kind of ultimately did it in. And I mean, clearly that was also a hint that air power would be the future of the war months before Pearl Harbor even happened. So I guess historically that's probably one of the biggest interests in the Bismarck, that it's this hint about what ends up coming later in the war. But in since this is a shipwreck, we gotta we gotta close out with our our find. There's always an after story, right? Definitely. In nineteen eighty nine Robert Ballard, the famous explorer, discovered the Bismarck 600 miles off the French coast at 15,000 feet. And it was in very good shape still. He had, of course, found the Titanic just three years earlier. And then in 2004, the hood was located. And both of the ships weren't touched out of respect to the dead, but they were thoroughly photographed and videoed and documented. Um, I think you can look up a lot of pictures of the two of them and look at diagrams. And, you know, people have tried to figure out what exactly went wrong, you know, what were the fatal strikes and what explosions occurred on the hood and just trying to piece together what happened. Trips to both of the sites were also sort of memorial services, too, because um, there were still survivors of both of them. And at the hood, a memorial plaque was actually released by its sole living survivor at the time. I thought that was one of the most interesting things about researching this episode 
seeing some of the survivors' accounts. And you can even see pictures of the men in the water from the Bismarck trying to get aboard the Dorsetshire. Wow. You know, grabbing the ropes and grabbing onto floating things. It's pretty scary looking. Well, that about does it for this shipwreck mini-series that we've put together here. Um, We've covered a lot of cool shipwrecks. And thank you to everyone for all of your great suggestions. And we're holding on to the rest. So hopefully we can do more podcasts on them later. I think we realized from doing this that all of these, even though we did a lot of them as a a list, a lot of these make great standalone podcasts. So we want to save the rest so we can cover them fully later on. The Bismarck was ultimately intended for a list. It was just too long. It was just too long. (laughs) The story is too good. But um, like I said, we have it covered here and we're going to now move on to listener mail. So this is kind of an upbeat listener mail because I don't want to close out on such a sad ending. Um, it's from Jenny, and she wrote, Dear Sarah and Dublina, this summer will be a long one for me as I finish my year abroad in France this week, but do not go back to university until October. So I've decided to take a grand tour like Lord Byron. Although I live in the UK, I've never visited much of the continent before, but your podcasts have definitely inspired me to take some of Europe's history. My stops will include Paris, where I'll see Versailles and Marie Antoinette's house, Florence, where Michelangelo's David is displayed and many Medicis are buried, Rome, with a day to see the Vatican, and Mad King Ludwig's castle. And then she thought that she's going to stop in Vienna, so she was hoping maybe she'd get a little Habsburg history. And I know that's a popular request, too. <laughs> I think they came up a few times in our in our bourbon series. Yeah, they got mentions. Yeah, but um, it sounds like a really good trip, Jenny. I'm kind of jealous. Yeah, can we come? I know. <laughs> you pack us in your suitcase, but... Um, it, I always like hearing about people's podcast-inspired vacations. It makes me feel good if y'all go visit museums we talk about and stuff. But Yeah, and send us postcards. Definitely. Send us postcards and, and just let us know if you're going somewhere cool this summer. We, we promise we won't be too, too jealous. No, we won't. We'll like reading your stories. We may read some here. Um, you can send those, of course, always to our email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com or you can hit us up on Facebook or on Twitter at Missed in History. And if you want to check out what we're up to, you can find us on the blogs on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. iTunes.